Um, anybody's keeping count? The 65th sermon on the Gospel of Mark. We went fast. <laughs> you guys may not feel that way, but uh, the, the beautiful thing about preaching through these books is that there is always more to be said than what I actually say. You could preach through the Gospel of Mark again without repeating ourselves. But when we think about the Gospel of Mark, the opening verse, the very opening verse, really points us to where we're at at the very end. And in fact, this could be the closing verse, right? Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because it really is the beginning, it's not the end, of the good news of the Gospel that we can take out into the world, and that is all because, in fact, Jesus is the eternal Son of God in the flesh. And in fact, we could add to that that He is the living, reigning, ruling King of kings and Lord of lords. And He demands to be the center of all of our affections. All of our attention must be directed to Him. If we claim to follow Him, then we claim eternal salvation through His person and His work. The entire Gospel, as we have worked through it, has been about Jesus Christ. Learning that He is the Christ. He is God's anointed who came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10 And though He suffered and He died on that cross to make the once for all sacrifice for the sins of those who will repent and believe in Him and trust Him and follow Him as Lord, in the end, if it were just that death on the cross, there would actually be no hope. There would be no salvation. There would be no forgiveness. Every person born, every person born in their sin would die in their sin with no hope. Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, He, speaking of Jesus, as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And if we only had that verse, we would be left in a hopeless state because that sacrifice is meaningless. And our faith is useless and meaningless if Jesus Christ was not bodily resurrected from the grave just as He promised. 1 Corinthians 15.17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If His death on that cross was the end of the story. The sacrifice wouldn't have been received and we would be wasting our time. And our lives would just be one steady march towards eternal damnation. The only hope that we could have would be to distract ourselves and have some pleasure now. Because eternity would be nothing but gloom and destruction. Now as dire as that is, and as direct as those statements are in Scripture, we should be shocked, and we tend not to be, Certainly saddened that many false teachers who proclaim to be Christian actually deny the resurrection. They deny the resurrection and they, they lead their people in a hopeless journey in this life, all the while telling them that they're loved and they're secure for some reason that I can't put my finger on. It's not just atheists. We tend to think that our, we're only dealing with atheists who might deny the resurrection. It's not just atheists. It's heretics. And I use that word quite literally when I say heretics in this case. It's not a word to throw around lightly. But it is heretics that claim to be Christian 
and in this case that I'm going to give you this example, actually claim to be pastors who can teach people so wrongly. I want to read you a question and an answer from a 2007 interview. And this interview was conducted by a woman who claimed to be a pastor, and she pastored the, what turned into the largest Unitarian, and, and Unitarians, I won't go into it, but they believe everything but the Bible, pretty much. Um, but the largest Unitarian church in Portland, Oregon. She's no longer a pastor, but she's quite well known. She's written a lot of books. Anyway, she is interviewing Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens will be a name that anybody who studies apologetics knows, because Christopher Hitchens, he hates God and he hates Christians more than he hates God. And he has some of the greatest quotes ever when you're ever looking for quotes about people who have an anti-Christian view because he pulls no punches. But she's interviewing him about his attack on Christianity in a book that he had written at the time called God is Not Great. This, this guy is avid in, in his thing. So she's interviewing God is Not Great. And here's what she says. She starts by talking to him about his views against Christians. He belittles them. He talks about how stupid they are. And she kind of says, well, not everybody's a fundamentalist. And she, by that, she just means a Christian, somebody who actually believes the gospel, the Bible. She says this, I am a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith, and here, like I said, she's generically just referring to Christians, do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Now, it's a fascinating question because what's behind that is, I'm a scholar just like you. I want you to like me and respect me. We can be friends, can't we? I mean, I call myself a Christian, but I don't believe what those, those you know, small-minded people believe in the Bible. Can't we be friends? Can't I be operating on the same secular plane as you? And I'm not exaggerating, a little farther in the article, she continues to try to garner favor with him, and she says um, she doesn't believe the Bible, and then she makes this statement, when I preach about Easter and the resurrection, it's only in a metaphorical sense. It's a story about feeling good and how we can be empowered, but it didn't happen. Listen to Hitchens' reply. And I, I, this is one of those replies where I want to say, amen, preach it, right? To the guy who doesn't just hate God, but really hates Christians, instructs people to belittle them. Listen to what he says to her after she says she doesn't believe in the atonement or the resurrection. His reply when she's hoping, he says, yeah, yeah, I make a distinction for you liberals, and I, I, you can be right on board with me. We're all one happy family. He doesn't say that. He says back to her, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. And he nailed it. Don't use the term. You're not a Christian. I want to be as, as clear as I can possibly be. Everything about Christianity, your entire faith, hinges on this truth. That God himself entered human history when Jesus took on a human nature, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, when he lived as a man and he went and he died on that cross and then rose bodily from the grave on the third day as he said he would. 
Because if that didn't happen in real life, as a real historical event, then nothing about Christianity matters. The actual term can't even be defined. You are just simply dead. You're eternally dead in your sins. Because there is no Christianity worth believing, no Christianity worth claiming, unless Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that if Jesus was not raised bodily from the grave, then we who call ourselves Christians, we who gather together to worship, we who walk in the Spirit and try to obey His commands, all of us who've given our lives to Jesus as Lord, Paul says this, we are of all people most to be pitied. Thankfully, He did raise from the grave. He lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather and worship You. Your mighty works in history are more than we can comprehend, and so we thank You for Your Word where You explain it to us, where You help us understand, where we can wrestle with these things as we try to conform to Your will, and we're so thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit that helps us do that, in fact, gives us the desire to do that. Please open our minds to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Mark chapter 16, right? Mark chapter 16, and here we do reach the climax of the gospel. And in fact, the event, the one event that truly changed the entire course of human history. Now, a quick recap, Jesus had suffered. We've, we've gone over this for the past few weeks. Jesus had suffered. He'd been crucified. He died without question on that cross, and last week we covered the burial of Jesus. And as we closed out chapter 15, we can reasonably say, in looking at the behavior of all the people, including his disciples, that nobody actually believed that Jesus would rise from the dead. Nobody. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin, remember who were secret disciples of Jesus, they had hastily taken the corpse, the dead body of Jesus, off the cross, they wrapped it in linen and spices, and they sealed him in a tomb. But it wasn't done in secret. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, were there. They saw where he was laid, it tells us in Mark 15, 47. Matthew says they were there. Right? They were there sitting opposite the tomb. But it was Friday. And as 6 p.m. hit on that Friday afternoon, you have to remember the way of the, 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 the Jews reckoned time, right? It's 6 p.m. one day ends. It's sunset, but it's roughly 6 p.m. The next day begins. So as 6 p.m. approached and the days changed, they all would have headed home because they were entering Sabbath. And that Saturday, that Sabbath, as we talked about, had to have been horrible. It had to have been horrible for all that they had witnessed and seen. But think of it this way too. The Sabbath is a period a forced inactivity. There is nothing that they can actually go do to get their minds off what they have just witnessed. We can only imagine that they sat, they lamented the death of the one they loved, claimed to be the Christ, and then Saturday was over. And when Saturday was over, an Easter comes. The first Easter. The first Lord's Day, the first Resurrection Sunday, it brought life. And that would change their world, and it changed the world forever after that. And that is actually where we pick up 
in verse 1 of Mark chapter 16. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Our passage begins with a timestamp, right? It says, when the Sabbath was passed, and as we say, that, that was around 6 p.m. on that Saturday, or what we would think of as Saturday. Now this time marker that we're given in the Gospel of Mark it is just as important as every other detail that Mark gives us in his very short and punchy account of what's going on here. It's important because this is a real historical event, right? It's something that happened on a given date, at a given time, in a definite place, a particular man named Jesus of Nazareth, having died and been buried for two days and in the grave for three, he emerged bodily from the tomb, right? He's giving us this time stamp. But I want you to see something more in that timestamp because it's not just a timestamp. This is a theological marker for us. It's a theological marker. This is the Sabbath, when the Sabbath had passed. The Sabbath was observed, you know, because it was commanded under Mosaic law, the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, 8 through 10. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. Right? This is how people entered God's rest. He tells us, God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. And that is the model for us. That's Exodus 20.11. And entering God's rest is where people long to be. It's a concept you see throughout Scripture. The promised land is a, a viewpoint on God's rest. People want to be in God's rest as His people, at His side, reconciled to Him, worshiping Him, enjoying Him. And then we think about what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You'll remember from when we were in Mark 14. How Jesus celebrated the very last Passover with His disciples. We talked about how that was a meal that not only looked backward to God's mighty act in freeing the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt all through the blood of a perfect lamb, but that meal looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice by the true perfect lamb, the Son of God, who would come, and that was Jesus on the cross. And that Passover meal then, at that moment, was replaced with something new. The Lord's Supper. And we acknowledge the work of Jesus in that Lord's Supper. And one of the things we do when we take that cup, remember? 
this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant that Christians live under. 1 Corinthians 11.25 And in that new covenant, we're not beholden to all of the Mosaic law. Some of it. But in a similar fashion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that first Sunday, the first Lord's Day, replaced the Sabbath as it's known in Mosaic law on the sixth day of the week. It instituted something new though. It didn't just go away. It instituted the gathering of the saints, the church, on the Lord's Day. And this is where we sometimes get it wrong in our culture. We are often quick to say as Christians, we don't follow the Sabbath as it was laid out in Judaism because we're under the New Covenant. But we get it wrong when we make light of the fact that it wasn't just eliminated, it was fulfilled and it was replaced with our call to gather and worship. We are still commanded. We are still commanded to gather, to worship God, to stop what we are doing, whether it's work or whether it's play, and set aside that one day where we can come and honor and worship Jesus Christ, our risen King. We all know the verse, right? We're commanded not to neglect gathering together, as is the terrible habit of some people, even in the first century. Hebrews 10.25. Already it was happening. We are commanded not to do that. The Sabbath went away, but it was replaced. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we have a command that we fulfill every Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. But, it is fair to say that the Sabbath and all of those rules around it, as commanded in the Mosaic Law, they did, in fact, pass away. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? Well, it tells us these are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You see, the Sabbath was always foreshadowing the rest that belongs to believers in Christ. From that first resurrection Sunday onward, all believers, all disciples of Jesus, all Christians gather to worship on the Lord's day. And we do it on the first day of the week, on Sunday, when He was resurrected. And you see that started right there in the early church. In Acts 27, you see that on the first day of the week, they gathered. That's Sunday morning. You see it in 1 Corinthians 16.2, where it tells to take an offering on the first day of the week. Revelation 1.10, what does John say? It was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which was known as the first day of the week. Hebrews 4, 9 and 11 tells us this, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The promised rest never went away. But all of Hebrews is pointing between the shadows and the reality that something better has come. And that better thing that has come is that Sabbath rest that we take in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the promise that we often grab onto. It's a verse we all know well, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29, when Jesus said, Come to Me, come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That rest is possible because of who Jesus is and what He has done and continues to do as our living and resurrected Christ. Now, obviously, much more can and should be said about the whole topic of the Sabbath and how it relates to our Christian worship on the Lord's Day. But I just want to point out at a minimum that you take note of these words used because they are, in fact, a theological marker and everything changes from the point of the resurrection. And it is that, really, that tells us why. It reveals the why we can take our rest in Jesus Christ. Now at that time, with the Sabbath past, 6 p.m. or so, the stores would all reopen on that evening. And we read in the end of verse 1 that the women had gone out and they had gone to these stores to purchase spices so that it says they might go and anoint Him. That was an act of tremendous love. It was an act of unbelievable devotion. We, we gloss over it too quickly. It wasn't buying spices for some sort of preservation of the body. The mummification was not a custom of the Jews. The anointing of spices particularly after a few days of death like this, was nothing more but a devout sign of love and respect for that body. And the fact that they wanted to do this for a body, a dead body of Jesus, shows the extent of their love and devotion to Him. You can start by just thinking about the Jerusalem weather. What they were going to do was going to a body that had been in the grave two nights, three days. The sight and the smell would have been enough to keep any normal person away from that. But that's not all that actually tested their love. That's not all that tested their devotion. That's not what made this risky to go and honor Jesus Christ. And in their case, His corpse. They've not yet seen the resurrection. Let's think of three reasons why this might be. First, they were a group of women. They were a group of women that left in the darkness. You have to put all the Gospels together to see this. But they left in the darkness. They arrive in the daylight. And they are going to a graveyard. They're walking through the streets and going to a graveyard. And that was a society that was just as depraved and unsafe as ours. This is not something that would be a normal behavior. It was not safe. Second, they're going to visit the grave of a criminal. This is somebody that the Romans had executed for insurrection. And they're going to honor this corpse in a very unusual way because this isn't normally done. And they're going to align themselves with this criminal that is in the grave. Somebody that the Romans would say deserved to die. And in fact, in their way of thinking, probably had a benefit just by being buried. They would normally leave these people on the cross to be eaten by animals. But worse... And this is really the worst part for them as Jewish women. They were going to a man, to, to anoint the body of a man who was absolutely despised and hated by the religious hierarchy. It, it was the Sanhedrin who condemned him to death on the basis of lies. And they were going to directly honor him. And the Sanhedrin, all of the religious leaders, they had ultimate power. They had all of the power at that time. They had the power to remove these women from the temple fellowship, from the synagogue. And that essentially removed you from the society. And in many respects condemned you to death as a woman. 
Because you didn't have the opportunity to support yourself. You were typically supported by men or by the temple. And here they are going directly against these men. They hated Jesus. And these women are going to take care of his body publicly. And there is something that we need to learn from that. These women were willing to take great risks, great personal risks. They knew the rejection they would receive. They knew the hatred that they would receive from their fellow Jews who were happy to see Jesus crucified. They knew all of this. But in this historical picture, we get to see an example of what strong love for Jesus really looks like. We often say we love Jesus. This is what love looks like. Today we can say we love Jesus and then we deny Him with our actions. We betray it by showing our true loves. We show it in the, what we support outside the church. The sin that we won't speak out against. Because when we say we love Jesus, we actually often confuse that with love for ourselves. We want to be viewed as friends. We want to be elevated. We aren't willing to take the risk. True love of Jesus accepts hardship. It accepts risk. It accepts the scorn of the world and those in power. But it does not waver in its service to God. This was hard for them. This was really hard for them because they were doing this for somebody that they believed to be dead. This should be easy for us. We make it harder, but it should be easy for us because we know He's not dead. He is alive. He is living. And He will return one day in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And we know that we follow the risen Lord Jesus. But this was hard for them. Why is it hard for us? Why is it so rare today to see professing Christians who will face any risk, even the most minor things, any challenge, any sacrifice, for the sake of honoring and glorifying and worshiping and serving Jesus Christ? Standing for His name in the face of a world that hates Him. Why do we see that so rarely today? I would tell you, a primary reason is because we have a very low value of what He did. A very low sense of obligation to Jesus Christ. And all of that stems because we have such a minor view of sin. We have such a minor view of our sin. Luke 7.47 says, He who is forgiven little, loves little. And we lie to ourselves every day. We think our sin and our rebellion is minor. That it's super minor. It can be overlooked. Surely what we do can be overlooked. And therefore we love little. We don't love much. This is easy to see in the Christian community just by looking at what we read and what we watch. How we spend our time. How we talk. The jokes that we laugh at and forward around. The way that we discount God's Word when it's not convenient because of the crowd that we want to hang out with. We can look at our politics. What we post and endorse on social media. Does it honor God? Does it stand for Him? Or does it reject Him? Does it make a mockery of His holiness? Some align themselves publicly with the very things that God says He hates. And He doesn't hate them because He decides one day what sin is and what sin isn't. 
That is not the concept of sin. The concept of sin is it rebels against God's very nature. It is who He is. A sin is a sin because God is holy. Not because as a holy God, He randomly picked behavior. If we see it at all, if we see the challenge to Christians at all, we see it more this month than just about any other month in the year. Because what of our nation and the world is consumed with. And I would just challenge you because God specifically tells us what behaviors, what lifestyles will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless there's repentance, unless there is faith. But worse than that for Christians who think you can stand on both sides of the fence on issues, He warns us in Romans 1. After pointing out abhorrent behaviors of people who suppress the very knowledge of God and who He is, He ends Romans 1 with a dire warning to those who profess Christ but approve of these behaviors. It is shameful, he says. Some do these things, but some even approve of others who live in sin. Matthew 7 should be the scariest passage for Christians today. It warns us. It warns us that there are many who will profess to be God-loving Christians They will use Jesus' name. They will say that they love Jesus. The woman who did that article, she would say that. It's a made-up Jesus, though. But Matthew 7, in verse 23, that's those terrifying words. There were many will come, saying, we did these things in your name. We, We followed you mostly. And he will say on that day, that day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me. Never knew you. Depart from me. You have to understand that Christianity, the the salvation that we attach to being disciples of Jesus Christ, it's more than just lip service. It's more than just our mental agreement with a series of facts. It is a changed heart. It is a changed heart that desires the will of God in all of life, no matter the consequences. It is pure love and devotion for Jesus Christ, for who He is, for what He has done. We grossly undervalue our sin. Very few of us ever think that our sin deserves eternal wrath and punishment of God. But I'm telling you to flip that. We need to love much because we have been forgiven much. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And when we say that, we have to recognize what that means. We're saved by grace and that means we are getting Something that is exactly the opposite of what we deserve. It's by His grace and His mercy. This should be easy for us. It should be easy for us. It wasn't easy for them. Because you notice one thing about these gospel accounts, and this one in particular. They did not expect to find an empty tomb. They did not expect that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead on that very morning. They went to that tomb expecting to find a body. We read in verses 2 and 3, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? We covered that last week. Remember, they watched Joseph of Arimathea roll a stone against the tomb. I had a discussion this week where somebody said it was interesting because they always thought, well, if you can roll it closed, you can roll it open. What's, what's the big deal? It's how they're designed, right? We talked about it last week. They're, they're massive stones, some weighing 
close to two tons, and they're positioned uphill from that opening. And they roll easily closed into a slot carved in the stone. And once they pop into that slot, it'd be like trying to roll a trailer wheel up over the top of a wheel chock, right? Except it's two tons, and you're a group of women. But what they didn't know was that it would actually get far worse before it got better. And it's probably a good thing that they didn't know. Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66, they tell us that the chief priests and Pharisees, they were worried about this resurrection nonsense, so they wanted to prevent any chance that there would be uh, someone taking that body. So they had successfully lobbied Pilate for guards, for a group of soldiers to guard that tomb. And verse 66 says, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is no small thing. When we think about guards today in our culture, we we think of them differently. But the punishment for a Roman guard, for allowing, in this case, anybody to get into that tomb, or worse, for Jesus' body to get out of that tomb, the punishment for that would be death. I'll point you just as one example into Acts 12, because we often overlook these kinds of passages. In Acts 12, you have Herod executing James, and he arrests Peter. And he's going to execute Peter as well. And Peter is in jail and he's between two Roman soldiers, the guards. An angel comes at night. The angel frees Peter. And off he goes. And and when the angel frees Peter, we're left with what happens to the guards. And we're actually told what happens to the guards. Um, We're told what happens to the guards in Acts 12. Verse 19. That's one of these things that I just love. We we never really talk about this. After Herod searched for Peter and did not find him, he examined the sentries, the guards, and ordered that they should be put to death. This is just one of those many passages to me that says, when we we talk about God and we think we know Him better than God has revealed Himself, we know Him better than God knows Himself. He's just love and He would never harm a fly. He freed Peter and these guards were executed, gruesomely executed publicly so that no other guard would ever commit this same problem. So things got worse. There are Roman guards there. But things then get better. They get better before the women even face that hurdle. Something else happened that they didn't know about. Matthew 28, 2. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stone and sat on it. What was the purpose? Why open the tomb? Why roll back the stone? We should ask ourselves these questions as we read. We need to be very clear, though, here. The purpose of that angel opening the tomb, rolling back the stone, was not, it was not to let Jesus out. That is not why he rolled back the stone. Jesus was already gone. This is part of that mystery of the resurrection body, right, that Christians even in the first century were asking Paul about, and Paul was saying, I don't know, but we do know that we will be like Christ someday. But in that body, Jesus could pass through his burial clothes. They were all laying there. He could pass through the tomb. He passed through walls without needing a door. We read in John 20, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. We know that Jesus could be touched. We know that he ate food with his disciples, and yet he also came and went in a flash 
during this period of time. You see that in Luke 24, 31 and 36, where he appears and disappears with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So the angel didn't need to let Jesus out. God doesn't need that kind of help for his plan of redemption. But thankfully, the angel appeared. Mark 16.4, as the women approached and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. He had rolled it back. It was for one purpose. It was to allow those women to enter the tomb and see that the body was not there. It was later for Peter and John who would ultimately come running and find that empty tomb as well. It was so that they could see the burial cloths laying there, but no body. And verse 5 says, In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. See, they expected, think about their mindset, they expected to walk into that hot tomb and be overcome with the smell of a rotting corpse and to see him. And tombs had two chambers. You would have walked through that outer chamber where the stone had been opened, but then you would see through the antechamber a smaller doorway. That's where you would expect to see the body. And instead, when they peer in, Luke 24, 3 says, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. He wasn't there. You have to imagine confusion. Stunned silence. But in that moment of confusion and stunned silence, it immediately turns to fear. Because when they turn, they see the brilliance of a heavenly messenger, an angel, Sitting there, that is what the white clothes point to in the Bible. There's no other way to try to describe it for the human mind. It's like the Mount of Transfiguration description. But I want us to see something here. What does this tell us? What does the empty tomb tell them? What does it tell anybody in history? You have to think about that because it's not just these women who will find the tomb empty. Many will. The Roman guards knew the tomb was empty, right? It says they had trembled and become like dead men when the angel rolled back the stone. This is Matthew 28. And in verse 11, it says some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests what had taken place. They knew it was empty. The Jewish leaders on getting that news in verses 12 through 15, they knew that the tomb was empty as well. Here's what they did about it. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, because remember, they would be executed for this. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the Romans knew. The Jewish leadership knew that the tomb was empty. Peter and John knew that the tomb was empty. They had run there, John 20, 6 and 7. In other words, this is no secret. Just like it wasn't a secret where the tomb was, everyone knew that the tomb was empty or would soon hear and find out. Everyone knew that the grave of Jesus no longer held his body. It was empty on that third day. So what does it tell us? It tells us that the body wasn't in the grave. It tells us it wasn't there. It gives us evidence of resurrection, but it doesn't actually explain it. And I'll put that with a biblical example. Think about what happens to Peter and John. 
The women come, they tell them that his body is not there, and they run, they sprint to the tomb, and they see the empty tomb, and what? And then they run out and proclaim the gospel? No. They see the empty tomb, and nothing happens in them. They see the empty tomb. They see that Jesus wasn't there. And then in John 20.10, it says, then the disciples went back to their homes. That was it. We read later that they had locked themselves in a room. The main thing the tomb did, the empty tomb did, and the main thing it does today is forces them and us to answer, what happened to the body of Jesus? What happened to the body of Jesus? Nobody at that time disputed that Jesus had died and that he was buried and that he was not in the tomb. And this is where we get an example of what we call God's Word Act Revelation. That is all of Scripture, by the way. All of Scripture. God's revelation is always a combination of His actions in human history plus His words. He spoke to us in words so that His mighty deeds can be understood by us so that we can properly interpret God's actions in His redemptive history. And so we can know Him. And so we can worship Him and give Him the honor that He is due. Because when you look at the Gospels, all four of them, none of them actually give us this this strange account of what actually happened in the moment of resurrection. Right? What happened there? This is not like these epic tales, these fanciful fictional tales that you'll read about in Greek mythology. We don't actually get that about the resurrection. What you do get is you get ordinary people that are experiencing life right up to the point where they have no possible categories to place what they're seeing in, what their experience is in, and God steps in at that moment to reveal His mighty works and explain them. And that is why the angel is there. Who says to them in verse 6, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid Him. The angel leaves no doubt. He knows who they're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth. We're talking about the same man. He knows why they're there. They're looking for Him. And in this moment, it would have been fair, I think, based on everything that has happened in the Gospels, if the message was actually different to the women and ultimately the disciples. Why not actually rebuke the women for their lack of faith. Why are you here in the first place? Why are you here? Jesus is the Word. The very Word of God become flesh. John 1.14 God is Spirit. We can't see Him. John 4.24 But they could and did see Jesus. And He is, we are told, the image of God. In 2 Corinthians. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews 1.1 in Jesus. The very visible image of God. God Himself. God the Son incarnate. He told His disciples, including these women, multiple times what would happen. He would suffer and die on that cross and He would be raised on the third day. You can go look at Mark 10.34 for just one of many examples of that. So we need to keep this in perspective a little bit because that could have been one response. But it wasn't. And in that, we see something very beautiful in this text. Because while the messenger from God, this angel, could have ripped into them about their lack of faith, their inability to listen to the Son of God, 
their selfish human tendency to put their experience above God's Word. He didn't do that. Not at all. Instead, he responded in a way that can only be described as the reassurance of God's love and His mercy and His forgiveness. The very things that are accomplished in and shown by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The angel just confirmed the most amazing miracle that has ever happened. It is the very miracle through which forgiveness can be had. He has risen. He has risen. He is not here. Luke gives us a little more of what he said in Luke 24, verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day, rise. And they remembered His words. Now they remember. Now, after being reminded. But there's one more message that this angel must deliver from God. And it really confirms what tender forgiveness, what mercy, what grace that God pours out on His disciples and all of us. Mark 16.7, He continued, but go tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. We should always stop and wonder, why in the world does God want to use these men? From the moment of the arrest a few days earlier, they had dispersed, they had fled, they had left Jesus, they had scattered. They were living in complete fear. Nothing about what you see in the disciples in this period of time resembles in any way the bold apostles who would go to the ends of the earth to establish the church who would die martyrs' deaths for not recanting on the story of the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now right now they're just scared, dejected men. They're hiding behind locked doors. They're afraid of the Romans. They're afraid of the Jews. But God planned to use them in mighty ways. And He tells the women, go and tell His disciples and Peter. And that should always sound odd to us. It sounds odd to me every time I read it. Go tell his disciples and Peter. It's an odd phrase. It makes it sound like Peter's not a disciple, doesn't it? If this is Peter, who we always read is the leader of the disciples, and we read about him constantly in his statements and his actions, and here we see this odd phraseology, go tell the disciples and Peter, as if he's not a disciple. It's divine mercy. It is pure grace at its finest on display for us. Peter had denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest. He had wilted like a flower and completely denied Jesus simply by being questioned by a servant girl. Somebody with no status and no power. And that's all it took for him to walk the other way. In these three days, you have to imagine that Peter was absolutely guilt-ridden and ashamed, thinking himself unworthy of being a disciple, unworthy of salvation, unworthy of serving Jesus in any capacity, unusable for the kingdom of God. How could he use me? I can't even stand up to a servant girl. He's a weakling. I'll be viewed as a hypocrite. People will know my past. They'll know how I fled. I'd be a hypocrite. I'm unusable. Nobody will listen. Those would all be normal human emotions. And you need to take great comfort in this statement 
if you happen to be one of those rare sinners out there who actually has a past. That was a sarcastic comment. That's everybody. That's me. If you're one of these people and you know that God could never use you because of what you've done or what you've said, look at these words about Peter. It is a display of God's incomprehensible grace and mercy and love. Nobody is beyond forgiveness if they will turn from their sin and follow Jesus Christ with all of their heart. That's all it takes. Think of the beautiful words of the prophet Micah. Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities, our sins underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. These are wonderful things. This is the God we serve. Jesus didn't go to the cross for the perfect people. There aren't any. There aren't any. He wasn't raised from the grave for the person who has already earned his or her way into heaven by all of the good things that they have done. That's an impossibility. Right? All your works are like filthy rags. It's an impossibility. That's not why Jesus went to the cross. It's not why He was raised from the grave. Make sure you tell Peter. Jesus expects him there. He has big plans. Peter will pay the ultimate price, we know that, with his life. But he will follow Jesus boldly to the end. What wonderful news that had to have been for Peter. The women get that final command in verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Trembling, astonishment, fear, reverence, awe. You can fill this in with all kinds of adjectives. Who could really pick words to explain the emotions that these women went through when they went to that tomb expecting to see a body and instead came face to face with a divine messenger from God? who told them that Jesus Christ had risen from the grave, that He was no longer there, and they needed to go and tell His disciples. They saw Him die. They were there at the cross. They sat through Saturday in despair. They came against all odds to show their love and their devotion. It would have been shocking that they came that way, but then learned He is risen. He is alive. What He claimed was true. He really is the Son of God. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? That's what they came to see, the very first words we read. Because it's not over. He lives, He reigns, He rules, and He'll return again. The silence that is spoken of here is not shocking. Some people are shocked by the way this ends with them running off in silence. That has got to be normal. That's ought to refer to their silence in shock and awe as they run to do exactly what that angel told them to do and tell the disciples. I can only put myself in that position and my imagination is it's one of those kind of movie scenes where you're running and tripping and you're jumping up and running as fast as you can. You have the best news, the most unbelievable news that could ever be shared with anyone. And you're the only one who's seen it and you've got to get there and tell them. How many of us have that sense of urgency about the gospel of Jesus Christ with those people we know who are marching toward an eternity in hell? That's the same urgency that we need if we believe what we claim to believe. The other gospels, of course, 
in Acts, in 1 Corinthians, and a few other places, they fill in all the details for us about what happens next. We won't turn there, but Jesus would appear to his disciples many times over the next 40 days, teaching them, preparing them for ministry. That's Acts 1.3. He'd share meals with the disciples. You see that at the end of John. Uh, he appeared not only to the disciples, but as we read in 1 Corinthians 15.5, more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, you can go validate his resurrection. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, as we have studied it, as we have preached through it, we received confirmation time and time again that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He is both divine, 100% God, the eternal Son, and that He is human in His human nature, 100% man. And the resurrection is the culmination and ultimate proof of that fact. That He came, He died, He rose again, and He did all of that to save sinners like you and like me. His resurrection, when we look at that, when believers look at that, it should remove all fear of death and in its place give us hope. Hope for the eternal glory that is assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first fruits, we're told, right, of the resurrection from the grave and we will all follow. Repent and believe. Started that message in Mark 1.15, I believe. Repent and believe. That is what he calls for. And believing, having saving faith, is more than just mentally affirming some facts, though you do need to start there, and then just going off and denying Him and His holiness and His character and His nature and who He is and what He has done with your life and what you support. It is trusting Jesus. It is loving Jesus with our whole heart. And it is a love that submits to the will of God no matter what our consequences in this life because we have the promise of an eternity with Him in resurrected and glorified bodies. If you understand what Jesus Christ has done for you, if you understand the grace, the mercy, the love that is poured out on rebels like us, we weren't born this way, then you will take exceeding joy in the angel's words. Go and tell. Go and tell of His resurrection. It is the only thing that gives hope in this life. It wasn't the end. It was the beginning. Tell everyone you meet of the good news of Jesus Christ. You start with the bad. The bad news for all of us is you are a sinner dead in your sins. But there is good news. The good news is God sent His only Son. He gave Him to live a perfect life and be humiliated and suffer and die on that cross. And He accepted His perfect sacrifice and He raised Him from the grave. And He lives and He reigns and He rules and He will return in power and glory and He will take us with Him someday. And all will stand in judgment. But if you believe in Him, if you trust Him, you will stand cloaked in the righteousness of the Son of God. And if you don't, you will face an eternity in hell. Because every knee will bow. That is not an option. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. Whether you deny it in this life or not, it is coming. This is a wonderful promise. The good news is that there is forgiveness and salvation by the mercy of God. It is eternal life and it comes in a name. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else. 
It is exclusive. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is our Lord. He is our King. He just demands our allegiance, our life. But He gives eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for, for there's, there's no way to do justice to what You have done to redeem a people for Yourself. Forgive the weakness of these words up here this morning because there's no way to convey the majesty of Your Son, the beauty of Your Son, the holiness of Your Son, the purity of Your Son, and the mercy and the grace that was poured out on us. Father, we're so grateful for the forgiveness of sins. We marvel at the mercy that that would have taken. And we'll never understand why. An eternity of eternities would not give us the ability to comprehend why you would save people who, for a time, rebel against you, against your word, against your nature. God, give us strength. Give us boldness to go out in the world and proclaim truth. Lord, keep us from wavering, from compromise. Remind us every time, God, that when we compromise, we compromise only on your holiness and your nature for our gain. That is dreadful. And we ask for your forgiveness for it is a temptation that faces us every day. Lord, we are thankful for the, the resurrection. More importantly, we're thankful that you have given us your word to explain what that means to us and to teach us and instruct us in all of your ways. God, please help us understand that. Apply it to our hearts. Apply it to our communities. Use us, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.